The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina, I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be focusing in on Africa's economic situation and with a lot of attention focused on debt. It's been a very busy week in the debt space. Let me bring you up to date quickly on some of the points that are going on that will help guide our discussion today. Uh, The G20 said today that they are going to get the gang of finance ministers and central bankers back together again on November 13th and try and come up with yet a better debt relief plan for the world's poorest countries. Now, if you recall back in mid-October, the last time they got together, they came up with what was basically a absolutely pathetic plan, which was just granted an extension of the debt service suspension initiative for about six months. And and that really was the bare minimum of what they they could do. And it really didn't answer any of the problems identified in Africa and that finance ministers across the continent have been calling for in terms of solutions as to what the international community needs to do. Now, interestingly, that date on November 13th, and if I recall, it's a Friday. So in the US, Friday the 13th is never a lucky day. But that is the day when a group of private creditors is also going to meet to vote to decide as to whether or not to grant Zambia a six-month extension on its debts. There's about $3 billion worth of eurobond notes that are coming due, and these investors are not happy at all with how the Zambian government is dealing with this and also not happy with what the Chinese are doing there. So one group of bondholders has already voted no on the Zambian government request, and if the second group does the same, then Zambia will become the first African country this year to default on part of its debt. But the die in many ways has already been cast. Last week, the ratings agency S&P slashed Zambia's credit rating to selective default, and uh, that was after the government missed an interest payment. So in many ways, the market is making up its mind with regards to Zambia. Now, Zambia, is very important to note, is not Africa. The situation in Zambia has been a mess for a very, very long time. But across the continent, one of the things that we're seeing is a a lot of warning signals that are going on. You know, so let me just read you a couple more points, Kobus, to get you before I get your your take on this. Fitch Ratings, which is one of the big credit ratings agencies, they issued a note uh, this week as well, where they said that seven out of the 19 sub-Saharan African countries that they rate, the sovereigns, uh, they've already downgraded. Angola and Zambia have been downgraded twice. They also sounded the warning on debt levels noting that at the end of 2019, the median debt level was 56.5% of GDP, and they expect that now to surge up to 72.8% by 2022. Uh, We're already seeing that play out now in Kenya, where borrowing has just been skyrocketing. They crossed the 7 trillion shilling mark about a month or two ago. So foreign investment is also uh, coming in. FDI inflows uh, into Africa shed 28% this in the first half of the year to $16 billion. Total FDI inflows into North Africa slipped 44%. 
So that's a big problem. And let me just one last point. I could go on all night, but I won't do that. Uh, let's talk about currency very quickly because currency valuations across the continent are going down. And that's putting an enormous amount of pressure on servicing so much of this debt that is in dollars. So in let's take Kenya as an example. 70% of Kenya's debt is in U.S. dollars. On Wednesday of this week alone, just in one day, the annual interest on Kenya's dollar-denominated debt rose by $83 million just because of the falling value of the shilling. So it is it is quite a dire situation, Kobus. I am much more negative than a lot of people, but I'm looking at all this data, and I don't see how this turns around anytime soon. It's it's certainly worrying. Um, you know, I, I think I think increasingly a lot of African countries are going to have to borrow more in order to stay to stay liquid. And then, as you as you said, sliding currencies means that, that that repaying that debt becomes harder and harder. What also happens is that a lot of that that debt will have to re be repaid through um, revenue made from selling raw materials, and we're seeing that. Um, Several kind of markets for raw materials are, are are moving away from key raw materials that Africa produces. So you know, so everyone is trying to move away from oil, um, and at the same time, I think there's, there's there's competition among a lot of big players to try and eliminate cobalt from from high from high tech applications. We already saw um, Tesla, the uh, Elon Musk's Tesla, announcing that they that they're developing a cobalt free battery. So you know, so so that also is is a kind of a worrying. Indication, you know, where where Africa seems to be cut off at the curb a little bit um, or at the bend then, um, you know, in terms of its options. Now, before we get too negative and down, let me just give you what the IMF's assessment is. Uh, they say that growth in the region should rebound modestly in 2021. It's going to be down about 2 to 3% in 2020, which is much lower than other parts of the world. And they say by next year, it's going to be back up to about 3.1% for many countries and then a full return to 2019 levels, which was very strong, uh, will come back in 2022, 2024. Now, I don't buy it, but a lot of people do, and a lot of people are optimistic, especially in Washington, about the future growth possibilities in Africa. And one person in that camp is Jude Itundi Isomba, who's the CEO and founder of Emerging Africa Partners, an investment advisory firm based in Washington, D.C. A very good morning to you, Jude. Good morning, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you very much, and, and Kobus, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's really great to have you on the show. We became acquainted on LinkedIn. You've been very active on my page, and I just love all the comments that you've been posting and the insights that you shared. And you were very, very critical, actually, to a number of articles and this negative narrative that I have been putting out in terms of relying on this data and how I've been framing the argument. I'd like to get you to expand on this, and I'm going to read a quote that you wrote in response to a column that I wrote on October 12th. That column I stated, at some point, the hole becomes just too big to fill. And I was kind of picking up on what Kobus was saying, was that the debt is just not sustainable. Now, you wrote, and let me quote you, and I'd like you to kind of expand on this, here comes another round of the apocalypse cometh to Africa, just as they were hoping it would happen with COVID-19. The popularity of this theme among the quote-unquote global society and the fact that its promoters keep doubling down no matter how many times facts on the ground nullify the narrative is worthy of a full study course in many countries. 
The truth is, international stakeholders have multiple incentives in African crises, perpetuating professionally, financially, bureaucratically, reputationally, and last but not least, power-wise. In this context, discussing African problems in constructive ways is always an uphill battle. And I think this is where you were kind of taking a shot at me. This is a moment where an honest journalist should drop the sensationalist Africanist stereotypes and look at the real motivations of the stakeholders here. Of course, those benefiting from Africanist apocalyptic predictions have been on the continent too. Look at the full chain of interest here, not just sensationalist headlines devoid of any reality. I love the comment. I'd like for you to expand on it and a little bit as to why this apocalyptic narrative you think is so misplaced. All right. Thanks, Eric. I, uh, I, my, my comments were indeed strong, but it's, uh, it comes on top of the, of the, of the, of the, the latest round of, uh, of apocalyptic thinking and African stereotypes. But before we get there, I think it's, it's important, as, as, as you said, to, to, to frame it correctly, because the, the source of this, of this uh, professional African pessimism is uh, is because uh, this is uh, the um, the people promoting those uh, those Africanist theories have uh, are, have an incentive uh, for this and and have framed the debate about African growth and about African governments in these terms. But before we get to to COVID nineteen, let's double back a little bit and and talk about what what have been the sources of growth for uh, for Africa. So uh, I'll try. I'll try to be as uh, I'll try to be as quick as I as I can be. The what are the facts on 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 the ground in Africa for the past twenty years? Uh, Africa. Uh, this COVID nineteen is the first time there will be a recession on the continent in twenty five years. For the past twenty five years, Africa has grown not a little. It has grown increasingly strongly and one could say exponentially the continent crossed 1 trillion dollars of aggregate gdp it took about 50 years for africa 50 years of of, uh, of independent africa to reach 1 trillion dollars of, of gdp it took less than 20 to get above 2 trillion dollars that happened in 2018 ahead of schedule uh, McKinsey said we had a, the continent had a good shot of getting there by 2025. It happens in, in 20, it happened in 2018. We were at 2.3 trillion, uh, late, um, lately. Now, what have been the sources of that growth? The number one source of that growth has been African governance. And here it's important to, uh, the, the, the central element are Africa's national development plans. Now you know them very well. I spend a lot of my time uh, with my with my company reading them uh, and 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 comparing them from country to country. Why are, are are they important? Because those plans have been the instrument through which African countries have transformed their development needs and strategies into a market. Uh, they're almost universal. Almost every African country has a national de uh, development plan, which uh, consists mostly of, of the following elements. A massive infrastructure build-out, which uh, aims to provide the, the, the through different projects, uh, specific de uh, development and economic outcomes in water, 
in power uh, production. We were talking about load, uh, load shedding a little, er, a little earlier. In transport, uh, of, so that means highways, that means railways, that means ports, uh, etc. And also specific industries, whether it's mining, whether it's economic, uh, special uh, economic and, and industrial zones, etc., etc. And of course, uh, uh, the same is as well in health and, and, and in education. The result of that, since these are specific projects with a specific dollar value and a specific delivery time, is that they can be tracked, they can be measured, and of course, they can be improved. So as a result, every African country um, development basically moves from being um, a theoretical debate, often uh, led by um, bureaucracies or academics living outside of the continent, to something that is, that is um, tailored by each country uh, by itself for its needs. And because of that, uh, it can engage uh, with other uh, foreign countries, with the international markets, and of course with each other. That has been the, the principle and the main source of improved governance across the continent. That's the number one source of African growth. How do you foresee the, the Africa's growing debt load um, impacting on this on this planning, uh, this ability to plan and to make decisions? It seems to me that that in a lot of ways it's going to constrict some of the options for African governments because they they you know particularly in terms of rolling out development initiatives because so much of their revenue will have to go to servicing debt. You, you and Eric are absolutely right. The debt is a is an is an issue that needs to be handled if Africa is to get back on track towards growth. But the debt is circumstantial. Uh, it's uh, basically this is a this is a circumstantial crisis that uh, that needs to be managed as such. The long term trends are the trends that have uh, propelled forward uh, African growth. And just to finish, so I talked first about. Um, African African governance. The other element of um, this is uh, this show is called the China Africa Project. The other uh, element of African growth has been trade with Asia, and within Asia, of course, China uh, in the lead by very far. Now, here it's important when talking about uh, China, and I and, and you will see how that ties into uh, the depth uh, when I. Uh, when, when I finish, because it's important to see, because people often frame China's involvement on the continent in terms of what Africa needs from China. The truth is, what they should really look at is what does China need from Africa? And basically, we know that because President Xi has spelled it out for us several times, especially um, uh, in, in, his, um, in his speeches in front of the in front of the. Um, uh, Communist Party uh, Congress. Uh, I, uh, so there are basically four needs that are driving China's engagement with the continent that are all related to China becoming uh, what it calls uh, uh, um, uh, a harmonious uh, developed society and which is really becoming, which in, in, uh, in, in, common, uh, in common terms should, should be called becoming the world's dominant economy that has organized globalization around itself. Now, to get there, it wants four things that it's seeking in Africa. Number one, uh, reliable long-term access to commodities. This, this means, of course, oil and gas, of course, uh, iron and, and copper, but also the commodities for 
for uh, for the fourth industrial revolution, such as lithium, such as cobalt, and 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 others. This also means agro commodities, uh, which are which are a growing need for. Uh, uh, for for China because the uh, the standard of living is 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 rising and people are consuming more and Africa is is uh, is uh, is basically the only region of the world where you have high uh, productivity gains that are still possible in terms of uh, in terms of arable land so number one reliable long term access to uh, various kinds of commodities the second need uh, has to is what I call supply chain partners. Uh, as China gets uh, richer, it also becomes too expensive for uh, for a whole series of, of industries that will need to be offshored. China's objective is to offshore those industries to allies who can organize those supply chains uh, in coordination with, with the Chinese markets and actually be, uh, become suppliers to the Chinese markets, su- suppliers of, uh, of, of, low, of low-cost product, exactly the way China was to the United States. A third one is, um, we could say, uh, exports and uh, norms. For China to uh, what I call for the for for, uh, for China's fourth industrial revolution economy, what I like to call the new China, uh, new China will need to export as well. It will need to export uh, high tech products, it, and, and in order to do so, it will also need to export its norms, its norms in technology. That explains the big fight that uh, that is happening now between the the United States and China um, about five G because. It's about the norms and also the commercial norms. Uh, you know, um, international commercial law is heavily dominated by uh, American law firms uh, in almost every country. Well, that's a, that's an area that the Chinese have targeted because that's an area of comparative advantage. If they can extend their influence in that realm, they'll be able to uh, expand their products and their and, and their businesses across the world that that much faster. And um, and uh, related to that, there's also the the issue of early adopters. Uh, China needs entry points to get to the uh, to 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 get its product and to get its norms to the international market. So Africa is a great uh, is a is a is a is a low base and uh, high high growth potential area where they can uh, where they can uh, push forward those norms and uh, a final one of course is is uh, is diplom- uh, diplomatic allies who can uh, spread a favorable view in general of uh, of chinese influence would you allow me to disagree with most of what you've said and i'd like to get your take on this just for the spirit of our conversation today number 1 commodities we we've seen that in the past 15 years china used to source oil, minerals, and timber. That was made up about 70% of China's uh, purchases from Africa. Uh, Oil purchases have fallen sharply off of Africa. They're now buying most of their oil from Russia, from Saudi Arabia, even from Brazil. The United States hit record amounts of of oil imports. Uh, They're not importing anywhere near as much oil from Angola, Republic of Congo, and Sudan anymore. And And even when there are opportunities to buy into oil fields in places like Uganda, Sinuk has backed out. Uh, so 
their appetite for oil is not as much. Their appetite for timber has also fallen in part because of scrutiny from environmental organizations in Gabon, also because they are sourcing a lot more timber uh, from Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and other points along the Belt and Road. So Africa's commodities are not anywhere near as important to China as they once were 15 years ago, simply because the Belt and Road is now there, which it wasn't a reality 15 years ago, but it's there now. Very quickly, on the fourth Industrial Revolution commodities, I think you're absolutely right, but Kobus pointed out in, in this discussion earlier on you know, right now they need Colton to, you know, to uh, cobalt, I'm sorry, to make uh, electric vehicle batteries. But Elon Musk is pioneering a new way to try and, not, and, and, and move on from that. But lithium is now being sourced out of Peru, again, Belt and Road. Africa doesn't have the place in the supply chain that it once had. Agriculture is a non-starter. Africa can't feed itself. Africa does not do industrial agriculture to be able to supply a market like China the way that Brazil, the United European Union, even Russia can, and certainly the United States. They just passed a, this week, there was just a, an announcement made that Tanzania will start exporting soybeans into China, but that's not for China, really. Let's be very, very clear here. This is a, this is a deal that's made to help Tanzanian farmers. China consumes 103 million tons of soybean every year. Africa will not be able to produce anywhere near that. And then finally, on supply chain partners, uh, you know, I mean, look what happened. We were supposed to have a podcast with you on Monday, but we canceled because Cobus was blacked out because of ESCOM and load shedding. And at the end of the day, if the infrastructure isn't there to be able to support manufacturing, the China market just requires way too much. And I'm sitting here in Southeast Asia and ASEAN, and these guys, their manufacturing is going up through the roof. Africa simply is not going to be capable to pick up the kind of manufacturing that China needs to do at the volumes that it does. The scale that China produces stuff is eye-watering. Now, I will agree with you on exports and norms. You're absolutely right. And then also on the diplomatic allies part, this is something we've been saying for a long time, to shift from economic importance to political importance. And those diplomatic allies are going to be super important. What's your take on my assessment? I think you just made an excellent um, example of uh, professional pessimism about Africa. <laughs> okay. <That's, laughs> it's fantastic. Not intentionally, it's by the way. Not intentionally. I, I just, you know, just, right. just, just be very right. clear there. So, okay, but go so, ahead. Again, let's back up. You remember the Economist headline uh, in, in 2000 or 2001? I think it was 2000. Africa had a hopeless continent. They they had to make sort of sort of amends ten years later uh, with Africa, the the hopeless continent, saying we are so sorry that we missed the biggest economic story of the beginning of the 21st century, which was the beginning of of growth in Africa. Why had they missed it? Like you, they focused systematically on the negative. One, like you, they were incapable of thinking strategically and long term about what those opportunities meant. Like you, they could not identify what the sources of growth were. When I've, uh, the, when I've laid out the, the, um, the Chinese needs per Africa, those needs, some of them are long-term. Some of them come after the other. Uh, commodities, in order for China to access the commodities, it, there, there, there's, there's first a need for a whole broad range of infrastructure. That's what 
the initial phases of uh, of Chinese in investment on on the continent were about because that was the the, the first focus. But it's only one of many, and once those are secured, the other one uh, ones uh, comes in, because once Africa has one, sorry, once uh, uh, China has, has has become a regular buyer and and has regular supply of, of of African commodities, it can safely move to the second phase of its engagement with Africa, which is. Uh, uh, industrialization and and supply chain partners. That has already started in some countries. Uh, In some countries, the Chinese are already uh, building cars, uh, cars not just for export, but also for the the local markets. Um, uh, Leather is uh, is becoming a sector in, uh, in, in Ethiopia. And actually, I expect that will be the case as well in the in the Sahel region, when you know how how much how much cattle there is and uh, and what the uh, and what the production and and and, and what the uh, the the labor rates are. There's a huge opportunity uh, for for that to happen there. There are uh, that 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 is a, has already started and will gather speed uh, speed. As for uh, in in the realm of um, of technology that's starting too and it will it will gather speed i'm i'm i actually think the um, the the recent estimates per the for the growth of the africa african space industry underestimate just how fast it will go uh, sudan in spite of all its problems actually this is a country we can come back to because hear it from me sudan is a future growth star on the continent we can come back to that. Uh, well, Sudan this year, in spite of all its problems, launched launched the satellite. Zimbabwe will do the same, in spite of all in spite of of all of its problems, etc. Uh, the Chinese are already cornering that market. And actually, uh, if we if and when we 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 talk about the USA Africa relationship, because it's not just the, increasingly the China the it's a USA Africa China. Uh, triad, not just uh, not just uni, uh, you know, not just one-way relationships anymore. Uh, so this is an area where where actually the U.S. government should be more proactive, etc. So it's it, you have you have to see these things in sequence. So Africa is not is is not going to be right now the main supplier of agricultural products to China. It's not there yet. But if you look at what's happening in terms of investment, if you look at, at, at what's happening in terms of product, productivity gains and improvement in the agricultural supply chain, this is very much where we are going. And if you, those who don't realize this now are missing the, the opportunity of African growth, just like they missed the opportunity of African growth in infrastructure, just like they missed completely even the existence of, of something like the, Af- the, the African space industry. Just like they're probably missing uh, a growing opportunity with regard to the nuclear industry in Africa, in this case, it's Russia that's that's cornering the the market. That's one of the that's one of the the main themes of the that was one one of the main themes of the Russia Africa 
summit, Russia is cornering uh, small modular technology, SMR technology for, for the continent, which is a great fit for, uh, for, uh, for Africa's needs. So basically, my point, my point is, you, you, you look at, you need to look at the, the opportunities for growth, and the relationship between China and Africa, which is central to that growth in sequence. They're not all going to come uh, to the fore at the same time. They're not all going to materialize at the same time. Actually, they need to be in sequence. But if you look at that sequence, it's a sequence that's, that lasts for 30, 50 years easily. That also explains China's particular interest, keen interest uh, in Africa, because the opportunities for, for uh, the long-term opportunities for growth last a century from a very low base to the sky's the limit. Kobus, you heard the more pessimistic view from me, as I think the, the negative narrative, as uh, Jude would say, and then you heard the more optimistic view from Jude. Where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? I probably fall a little bit in the middle. Um, you know, I, I do see a lot of these opportunities um, that Jude was mentioning. Um, but I do wonder a little bit, and, and Jude, I'd, I'd like to, you know, to, to hear your input on this. I wonder a little bit, like in which to which extent kind of structural weaknesses within African economies and within African kind of governance systems are gonna gonna kind of mess some of this up. I mean, we, we we're talking we're talking at a moment, you know, kind of when we we've seen kind of widespread public violence in in Nigeria, for example. Um, you know, with with you know with, with attempts by the army to 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 cover up some of some of the the kind of outrages that that they've perpetrated there and like zero engagement between uh, civil society and the government in fact the government you know kind of um you know referring to uh, to protesters who were unarmed you know kind of singing the national anthem um as these kind of these you know these violent kind of miscreants um you know so and I, I worry a little bit not only about that on a national level but then also about the interaction between different african countries to try and implement the, the african continental free trade agreement um which we've seen um you know kind of like a lot of kind of squabbling a lot of a lot of difficulties a lot of replication on on various sides of the border um so where do you think you know kind of this kind of do, do you a do you foresee some kind of um governance renaissance um in africa and then where do you think that'll come from? I very, I'm very much a fan of the way you laid out the issues right there, uh, Kobus. I, uh, you're, I think you are right to focus on civil society. But I, I think here the, the main point is not to focus on, any, again, on any one crisis. It's easy because Africa is so big, because it is so diverse. There's always something going on. There's always some type of crisis. So if you focus on them constantly, you you will become a, a, a professional pessimist. And if your job and you get your money from and and you get your if you get your budget, if you get your reputation, if you get your um, your influence based on your ability to treat those crises, that will turn you turn you into a professional pessimist. That's what happened to the economist. Unfortunately, that's been for way too long. What's uh, what's how the uh, the the, the, Bre the Bretton Woods. Uh, sisters and the UN agencies have functioned. And if you ever do a subject on those, I would love to be invited so that we get into those details. Now, what's important uh, about uh, African civil societies is not so much, well, that they are uh, often tragically clashing with the, with the government often. 
it's what's more important uh, as uh, you know tragically again in in this moment in in Nigeria and you know we can all, we can only send our uh, our con- condolences and and our prayers to all the to all the victims and 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 uh, hope that Ni- Nigeria finds finds a solution uh, which i trust they will because they've been there before and they've had uh, they've actually had worse crises crises uh than uh, than this but something that has systematically come out of those is the increased role of civil society not just in terms of politics but also in terms of governance uh, the reason the national development plans in across the continent have been successful is because the civil society have has have bought into it everywhere um that's 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 the reason they work and we're talking um, we can take the the example of 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 Cameroon when the 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 major projects program was was announced there was great skepticism because often these were projects that were decades old 30, uh, 20 30 50, sometimes as much as 50 uh, years old so you know people were 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 very skeptical of the of the government's ability to to deliver well fast forward and uh, and the debate has completely changed why because they saw results coming to the fore and it went from how is it, how are they going to do this what are they talking about to hey why aren't you doing that in my neighborhood in my region you know why are you only doing that over there and there's a, and and that has started the the process of a, of engagement where the civil society has as is actually pushing the the government's performance in terms of governance and and in terms of increased productivity of the of of the public sector i'm like you are right kobis in that they can and should be doing better uh, nigeria is actually in in terms of uh, of african national development plans is sort of an odd duck because in most other african countries they have they tend to have good national um, good national development plans and their issue is to implement them well and better and faster in nigeria they have a very active and extraordinary private sector i'm constantly in all of them and by the way allow me to shout out my former employer Tony Elumelu and the Tony Elumelu Foundation with <laughs> with whom I uh, I work and I and I was able to uh to exp- uh, to ex- experiment and 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 learn a lot of the those the concepts and and ideas that I'm uh, de- developing for you he's definitely one of those pioneers making that happen so N- Nigeria has plenty of Tony Elumelus of uh and Aliko Dangotes who are implementing a whole bunch of uh, of businesses and needs on for for Nigeria's people what they what Nigeria what Nigeria is still lacking is a national development plan that harmonizes it and that can, and that harnesses that talent towards um development goals so Nigeria is 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 a bit the reverse of 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 the continent and that's where i think they need to work uh to work more uh in that sense Okay, let's shift gears because our time is running out and I know you have a busy day ahead of you. Let's talk about the US-China 
U.S.-Africa relationship, or more importantly, the U.S.-Africa relationship. You are sitting there in Washington, D.C. You follow what's been going on. It's been actually a very busy week in that space. Uh, let's go back to, I think it was last Saturday or Sunday, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump was on a phone call with the Sudanese prime minister and also the Israeli prime minister, and he talked about the Ethiopia, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, and he suggested that, Ethi that Egypt should bomb it and blow it up. Well, that did not go down well in Ethiopia. Mm. Also, yes, uh, no, it, did not. <laughs> it did not. And uh, this, of course, is the same president who has referred to African countries as assholes. This is the same president, of course, who has been on a clear partisan in terms of law enforcement on the Black Lives Matter movement. This is the same president who withdrew free trade privileges from uh, your country, uh, Cameroon, and also from Rwanda as well. Uh, he withdrew AGOA. Uh, he has not had a very productive relationship with Africa as a whole. Uh, trade between Africa and the United States has been steadily falling since 2015, mostly because the United States does not purchase oil as much from Africa as it used to. But that being said, there's been a lot of activity in the development finance space. And there's a new development finance organization that's up and running. They're very active. But it's very interesting. And they had an event two weeks ago where they you know, came out. And in the introduction, Robert O'Brien, the U.S. National Security Advisor, again, like John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, frames Africa policy so many times in context of China. Exactly. And it was interesting in Robert O'Brien's speech, time and time and time again, he's saying, we're here for Africa because we're better than China, over and over again. And it created this very uncomfortable situation when, right after O'Brien's speech, Senegal President Macky Sall came up and really defended his government's interaction mm -hmm. with China and said, listen, we're getting loans at 2 to 3% uh, over 25 uh, years. Exactly. That is a good deal. And it, it really felt insulting the way that the Americans were talking with Macky Sall present in the room there. And I'd like to get your take on where you think we are right now in the U.S.-Africa relationship, because it, it, on one hand, it feels like it's lost and on the other hand, it feels like it's very energetic. And I can't really tell which one, where and where we are. It's definitely energetic. I hope it's not lost. Um, what's, I th uh, what's important to, to remember is that the difficulties of U.S. Uh, policy in, in Africa did not start with this administration. Uh, the, it, the previous ad administration was... I hate to say, yeah, let's, to be blunt, let's say it, uh, was just as clueless, though for different reasons. Um, the, so it, but that would, that would take, uh, <laughs> that would take too much of our time to get into those, uh, those specifics. Uh, what is important is the energy uh, that's happening here in the, um, in the United States with regard to Africa. There's definitely a, a realization across the board that Africa matters. That Africa matters, not just we were talking about the the drivers of uh, of, of uh, Chinese Chinese needs for with regard to, to to Africa, not just in terms of influence at the UN or uh, or diplomatic uh, influence or specific contracts, but I think the the U.S. government has uh, has realized that, for example, in the case of Huawei, 
its uh, its ability to to restrict the 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 global expansion of uh, of Huawei was um, was great, greatly limited and even nullified by the fact that Huawei has such a strong stronghold on the African continent. Talking about the spread of Chinese norms and uh, and uh, and uh, in, in in technology and in and in and in commercial law, well, Huawei is a great example of this. Not just Africa, of course, but uh, the fact that Huawei has built the three G and four G. Uh, uh, networks in uh, in in almost three dozen African countries is part of what enables it to weather uh, being cut off from the U.S. market uh, so well, which of course has uh, repercussions that are uh, strategic for technol for for the technology sector, but also for the wider uh, you you could say even the wider global economy with the fourth industrial revolution. So. Uh, in terms of what's happening, there's definitely a lot uh, happening with regard to the IDFC, and unfortunately, the the thinking here in DC is still ab about we need to be in Africa to stop China. Uh, so we need to tell Africans that they should not work with China, and that's that's unfortunate because it's counterproductive because it's not going to work. I. Uh, one area where we do agree uh, is your latest article where you spelled out where the, the latest tech initiative from, from the U.S. government, which was designed sp specifically to sort of counter Huawei, uh, was not going to work. I agreed with every single word of it because you spelled it out correctly. In a nutshell, the U.S. Uh, US government policy needs to move away from 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 trying to deny China in Africa to trying to build its own visibility and its own networks uh, in Africa, by uh, by which I mean networks that are um, uh, by which I mean uh, networks between decision makers, policy makers, policy implementers, not just the presidents, but also the uh, the the cabinet ministers, the government officials, and all the way up to the. To the, to the project managers, not just once, but on a regular basis, so that you know what these people are doing, uh, what they want to do, and what they could do better on a regular basis. Out of that will come the themes, the themes that can, that can be, uh, that, that can be uh, regrouped together and, and then fed back through um, U.S. officialdom, but also, more importantly, uh, U.S. companies. That's the main need. U.S. companies need that visibility. And it is because China has built that visibility in Africa through this constant engagement at the level of the presidents, at the level of the, of, of the cabinet ministers, of the government officials, and, the, and all the, you know, the implementers further down the line. And that this is something that is done on a regular basis. It's, it's not once a year or, or, or once every three years with the FOCAC. It's in between, and, and, there's, and there's regular back and forth. That's what has allowed uh, not just the, the Huawei's uh, or the Technos, there's another company we could we could spend a, a lot of time on, but also all sorts, even the smaller Chinese companies, to have free access and and have much much uh, much freer reign uh, in uh, in Africa. They have that visibility. That's their main comparative advantage. That is what U.S. business is missing uh, in Africa, and actually that's also having an impact in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, of political relation. So the IDFC is going in that direction, 
but I think too slowly and not comprehensively enough. They've started talking to some presidents, uh, which is good, but you need to talk to everyone further down the line, and you need to do it for every country. And also the, the IDFC is not exploiting um, uh, great great tools that the U.S. has to, to enable this. Uh, I'm, uh, there, there are the Peace Corps volunteers. You know, if you need... If you need people with uh, foreign country, uh, foreign country uh, knowledge who can readily help you, help you, help you build data that's that's going to facilitate U.S. U.S. business and U.S. policy. Ta-da! There's a program for you. Also, uh, there's the diasporas. Almost every African country, almost every single one has. A diaspora that's present here in the United States, people who have gone to college, people who have, uh, who have college degrees, graduate degrees, who are professionals, who work in different businesses, these people can be leveraged to, to work in teams with the Peace Corps volunteers, with people from the IDFC, and create uh, that, uh, uh, that data and that, and those, and, and that networks on, uh, on a country-to-country basis. So those are... Those are the things that the IDFC should be doing. Those are the things that would that are useful to U.S. business, and uh, well, hopefully, you know, they will go much more strongly in that direction. Recently, Afrobarometer did another of their surveys um, looking at the popularity of different external development partners in Africa, and and they found that that both the U.S. and China um, have high levels of approval. Like like on, on for both of them, um, people people see them as development partners, and particularly as development models. And the, we we had there's very not only were both high, but they were almost they they, they scored roughly the same percentage. Like um, um, and you know this really confused me. It's, it's, um, I'm not surprised, but I'm not surprised you you, you were confused. <laughs> yeah, because I was wondering how how two different development models that are so fundamentally different than the ones between China and the U.S. how they can both be seen as viable development models for Africa. Like, wh- what did you make of that contradiction? It's not a contradiction to uh, to me. I see it as uh, because I see it from the African perspective, and I see it as uh, Africa. Well, as each African country trying to define its own way by borrowing from what from the best of what's out there. Uh, the U.S. is the is uh, for all for for all its problems is still the the country of reference for the entire global economy. Uh, China is special in that it used to be poorer on a, on a, on a per capita uh, on a per capita basis than most African countries and now by uh, on a PPP basis it's become the um, the world's top economy outpacing the United States I think in every African country both at the policy maker level and in civil society and in the general public there's people are looking at both and trying to see what they can take from each to to chart their their own way and uh, that's that's both um, an irritant I think to to US policy specifically but I think that is also an opportunity if they can uh, if if they if they understand it because just because a country has is is working with china in 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 some in in some areas and and chinese influence is, is growing in some areas does not abs- is that it absolutely does not mean that they do not want to increase us influence in that same 
country. That's true in Cameroon. That's true in Kenya. That's true in, in basically every every African country, uh, including those that are that are working with uh, closely closely with China. So it's part of uh, it's part of the continent charting its own way. So it looks it looks odd. You know, you're looking at at the CPC on one hand and the U.S. Constitution on on the other. But from the from you know, it makes sense in terms of. How do we how do we get to where we want to go? Judy Tunde Isomba is the CEO and founder of Emerging Africa Partners, an investment advisory firm based in Washington, D.C. And as you can hear from our discussion today, he brings a, a very different perspective than what we've had on the show for a long time. If people want to follow you and connect with you on social media, what's the best way to do that? I'm mostly in terms of uh, in, in terms of talking about uh, Africa. I'm I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. I'm not on Twitter because I I, I don't find it productive i think linkedin is is uh, and 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 so, and some are articles that i've that i've published on um, on medium as well so so those are those are the main venues that i uh, that i exchange ideas on 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 this front well i will put links to both your medium page and also your linkedin contact so if people want to reach out they can do so also, Jude, I appreciate that you're very active on my page on LinkedIn as well, on the comments and the stories that I put up every day. Part of what we're trying to do at the China Africa Project is to spark the kind of conversation that you're having with us. And it is so exciting and it's so great that you disagree and you disagree so passionately about it because we're not looking necessarily to persuade anybody. We're looking to have these kind of conversations to help us get to a better place. So thank you so much for taking the time this morning to join us. And we are definitely going to have you back to talk about all the other things that we couldn't cover today in our discussion, but uh, our time is limited. Oh, yeah. I've got plenty more. And, and also allow me to say that I follow you regularly because I've been so impressed by the quality of the, of the guests you have. So I'm even more so honored that you, that you thought to invite me as you well. You are now part of the club. So thank you so much. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Kobis. You, you, uh, sorry, Eric and, and Kobis as well. You both have a great day. Kobus, the lesson today from Jude was that if you engage with us, you can come on our show <laughs> because we just love having these kind of discussions. And the fact that Jude is so knowledgeable on so many different aspects of the U.S.-China, U.S.-Africa relationship, uh, to me, is very exciting. Again, he's been very active on my page on LinkedIn and adding so much dynamism to the discussions that we're having on LinkedIn there. So it was really an honor for him to be able to join us. And again, I want to make this known to anybody listening to the show. Uh, we really believe this is a community program. So if you would like to be a part and you have a point of view, uh, either kind of hit me up on LinkedIn, let us know. But this is an example of how we love integrating our community into the program. I don't, again, it won't come as a surprise that Jude and I are not on the same page on a lot of things. Again, I, I do love the fact that he's optimistic. I think Optimism in the United States, to me, is misplaced. Uh, I'm not a big fan of U.S. policy towards Africa, in part because I think it's too influenced by China. Also, it's too aspirational. There is too much about talking about what's coming. And he talked about the potential. Yes, the diaspora, the, the Peace Corps. There is so much potential in the United States to do amazing things in Africa. And there are a whole community of people out there like Jude Moore at the Center for Global Development, uh, Judd Devermont at the CSIS, uh, you know, Jude himself, who are putting ideas right in front of policymakers' faces to be able to do some of those things, and they're not doing it. And they keep coming back to China, 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 as our president says, or my president says. So I think it's 
all aspirational. We don't see the effects on the ground. And at the same time, there's this great quote that I put in the newsletter today. Let me read it to you. Uh, it comes from Michelle Gavin, who is a senior fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I think she said it so well. And I put this quote in our newsletter today. She said, while Trump administration officials charge around warning Africans about the danger of doing business with China, they ignore the damage they've been doing to the United States' credibility and desirability as a partner. And this keeps coming up over and over and over again. So whether it was about the dam dispute between Ethiopia and Egypt, or just just this week again, and you know things move fast in the United States, the U.S. objection to the Nigerian American candidate to run the World Trade Organization, when the European Union, Japan, Africa, Latin American states all agreed for her to become the next managing director or director general of the World Trade Organization, the United States steps in and says no. Whether it was pulling out of the World Health Organization, that was seen as a slight. So there is so much that the United States is doing that is counterproductive. And so that's one of the reasons why I am skeptical of this more positive narrative that Jude kind of brings forth about the potential of U.S.-Africa relations when, in fact, the present, to me, is so muddled. Yes, there's there's a few different problems involved one one is just simply that that africa keeps being kept out of 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 spaces of power right and um the blocking of of ngozi okonjo iwayala um for the for that seat at the world trade organization i think it's gonna i think it will cause lasting damage i think um the you know the the the, the thing is the feeling i think in africa is frequently is like oh yeah it's, it's it's great to have you involved it's great to to you know kind of to have you kind of up our diversity numbers you know kind of and have an have an african face on something but the moment anyone comes close to any kind of you know kind of space of power they get pushed out and i think that this the world trade organization story fits very well I think, into that narrative. But what's weird, though, is that she's got an American passport, too. Yeah, yep. I yep, mean, so like, she does. And that didn't help her either. No, <laughs> so, but, that's um, why, but that's why other pe- people are starting to suggest that maybe something else is at play here. They don't want an African in that but role. But of course, that's but but that was also the narrative of the Trump administration, right? Yeah, is that if you if you're brown, then an American passport won't help you like that. That that citizenship can be taken away. Well, to be fair, the trade minister of South Korea yes, is also not white either. But but again, they don't necessarily like having Africans in, in positions of power like this because they're concerned, like Tedros at the World Health Organization, that they might be too closely aligned with China. That is speculation that was coming out today. Uh, but it, again, is just making African life difficult. And this was, again, the United States, uh, you know, in desire to do an investigation into the president of the African Development Bank. It just starts to build a pattern here that you're not a team player on Team Africa. Yeah, yeah. And there's also what comes with it is, is, a, is a longer term kind of way of the way that, that Africa is kind of viewed in the world. And, and, and this is true, I think, for, for particularly, I think, for Europe and, and the US, is that there's this almost sadistic view of Africa, um, which I think which um, um, Jude was, was really pointing at, you know, this, this and, and, and in his writing, he really pointed it out as well. This and, um, you know, there's this kind of hope for the worst thing to happen in Africa. Africa. And, and we, we really saw this very strongly in um, under COVID-19. There was a BBC headline recently, which is like the mystery of Africa's low death toll of COVID-19, which is like, why aren't they dying more? Like, why? Why? You know, that, that kind of almost like it's dis- a disappointment that there isn't more of a crisis due to
due to COVID-19 in Africa, that Africa managed to take the lessons from HIV and Ebola and apply them and make, and that the, the continent actually became more, more kind of like crisis resilient. Uh, you know, in, in, in the moment where, where Europe and, and, and America is really flailing in, in, in a response to the COVID crisis, you know, that, that, that kind of response, I think, is, is very is very revealing um, because uh, because I think it, it it really is one of the things that governs Africa's global position. Um, you know, kind of everyone is very comfortable with with a kind of a pathetic, sad, powerless Africa. That 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 is everyone's comfort zone. Um, you know, and it, it, a more active Africa making their own decisions. That's a new space for everyone, and and a lot of people are are not comfortable with that, and they and they actually then hide that discomfort behind a, a set of other narratives, a, a set of narratives about African governments and corruption and blah blah blah. You know, so so I think I think he really has a strong point there. Is it because they're not comfortable? with it or more because they just don't have the vocabulary to talk about Africa in a different context. And this is one of the things that I see in France when I was working at France 24, the, the, the French TV station. Uh, the, the, the way that Africa was framed was very fixed. This is, and it's those traditional embedded narratives that we've talked yes. about many, many times, which is war, famine, HIV, child soldiers, dancing babies, you name it, you know, safari. Pick the 10 kind of memes, and that's how you frame Africa. And then all of a sudden, this kind of counter-narrative comes in. And, and people just don't have the experience, the vocabulary, the insight, the perspective to talk about it that way. And in some ways, that's what's perplexing about the Chinese challenge in Africa, because China, although initially did not come in with that language, it's now starting to adopt some of that language. Wolf Warrior 2 was just the greatest hits of all those narratives, that movie that you know registered a billion dollars. And you start to see in Shanghai subway stations and in Beijing and on TV now some of that kind of portrayal of the Western kind of dependence narrative that, that has become so common that's now in, integrated into the Chinese narrative on Africa. But for the most part, you said something early on a couple years ago that you know, China robs Europe of its narrative about Africa. And I wonder if that kind of plays into it. Yeah, I think so. Because in the end, Europe's narrative of Africa is it's Europe's narrative of itself. Europe has Europe has always defined itself in in relation to the other. And Africa was always other number one. Um, you know, it so so the 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 whole way that Europe understands itself as being rational, as being law abiding, as being forward thinking, or blah blah blah, like whichever of these these kind of self flattering stereotypes you you choose, for each of those they have a constructed image of Africa as being the opposite. Africa as being primitive, or backward, or looking into the past, stuck in the past, whatever. You know, so so you know, it, it all of these perspectives of Africa are actually self portraits of, of the West. Um, and and they're so they're so kind of locked into them because it is in the end about their own self-definition. Um, you know, and 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 for that reason Africa then has to kind of play this part in someone else's play um you know and the moment when they're trying to when they try to kind of like take control of the narrative that's a moment you know kind of which western commentators frequently find extremely disturbing uh you know so i'm, I'm not surprised actually that, that that it's playing out again so once again if you want to be like jude and you want to join us on the program or you want to engage with us just send us an email eric at chinaafricaproject.com Cobus, C-O-B-U-S, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. By the way, my name is Eric with a C. Email us, reach out to us. I, 
will respond very quickly and often in very lengthy dialogues with everybody. So I love doing that. So we'd love to hear from you. But it's just an opportunity also to to connect you. If you've got something interesting today, we'd love to have you on the program. Also, just a very, very quick reminder, our newsletter, you can sign up at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. A lot of the articles that Jude is kind of responding to are the daily columns that Kobus and I write in the newsletter where we're trying to kind of put some of these ideas out there for discussion. Uh, today, I was writing all about the China Development Bank and their debt deferral program with uh, the deal that they reached with Zambia, how it's a good start, but it's nowhere near enough. We talked also about the Europe-Africa uh, relationship this week. And so trying to put those, those quick little nuggets out there for people to think about the topics of the day. We're so excited by the response that the newsletter's getting, and we would love to have you as part of our growing reader community. So once again, ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.